This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. There was also a major oil leak on the bridge where right where she was dumped too. So yeah, it's it throws up a lot of red flags. You know, she says her mom had so much had so much life before that and you know, loved animals, was a good person, was a fighter. Do you think this case is solvable? Yes. My name is Katie Jeffries. I am an anchor here at First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida, and I lead a series called Unsolved, which focuses on local cold cases. Katie Jeffries leads our Unsolved series. Katie Jeffries has more in tonight's Unsolved. Katie Jeffries leads our Unsolved series focusing on local cold cases, and she has more tonight. In the spring of 2021, First Coast News anchor Katie Jeffries began looking back at a local murder case from the 1980s. So I reached out to the Columbia County Sheriff's Office and I asked them if they had any cases that they wanted to feature for our Unsolved series. Um, any cases that, cases that they felt would benefit from the spotlight on them again. And this was the case they responded with, the Darlene Messer case from September of 1989. It's a case that has no shortage of threads to follow. So with this case, it has so many interesting features on it. When I first started really digging into it, I I frankly was like, how am I going to tell this story in five in, to six minutes? This thing could be an hour special in and of itself because there's so many different leads and so many different um, little threads to pull that are just interesting. But the case isn't just interesting. Investigators think it's solvable. Todd Lucier, L-U-S-S-I-E-R. Lieutenant Todd Lucier has been with the Columbia County Sheriff's Office in Florida since 2004. Darlene Messer was from Canada, and she moved to Lake City, Columbia County in 1989, about eight or nine, eight or nine months prior to um, her death, where she was a convenience store clerk. Darlene worked at a store called Swanee Swifty, and according to Lieutenant Lucier, she was pretty well known around town. She was known to be social, she uh, knew a lot of law enforcement, firefighters, people like that because of her working in the convenience stores. And um, she moved here because of her husband, who was actually, uh, he was, he was uh, arrested and sent for a life sentence for he, she, like, through pen pal, basically met him. She had moved here because she had started a kind of pen pal-type relationship with a man named Charles Messer, who was actually a death row inmate out at Rayford, which is a prison um, out in the First Coast area. It's a, a death row prison, and Charles Messer was on death row at the time. So she moved to this area to be kind of closer to him. And they kind of got married even though he was behind bars. And that's how her name became uh, Darlene Messer. Although Charles Messer was in prison for murder, investigators don't believe he had anything to do with Darlene's death. They don't believe he has anything at all to do with this case. They've interviewed him um, and they found no connection to him and Darlene's murder, um, which I, again, I know is wild. Uh, it's another piece of the story where you just think, wait a second, what? But they say they don't believe he has anything to do with her murder. There was nothing there. I mean, uh, he had no money. He had no way of 
you know, it was, it was 30 years ago of communicating anything like that. So I, I don't think anything at all to do with, with his death, or excuse me, her death. By the time she moved to Florida, Darlene Messer was also a mother. Now, she did have a daughter um, from a, uh, a previous relationship in Canada. Angela Tini is um, her daughter's name. And Angela says, you know, she didn't really get to know her mom that well. Um, she was mostly kind of raised by her father. But from what she did get to know uh, about her mom, her mom was very much a free spirit, loved animals. Um, and of course, Angela's kind of been carrying the torch for this case to try and get it solved and really trying to make sure her mom's name isn't forgotten in all of this. In the fall of 1989, Darlene was still working at that convenience store, the Swanee Swifty, in Lake City, Florida, a blip on the map not far off the highway that connects Tallahassee to Jacksonville. That's where she was on Monday, September 18th. On September 18th of 1989, Darlene was working the overnight shift at a small convenience store called the Swanee Swifty. It was along State Road 100 in Lake City. So she had been kind of working there a while. They said that she was a, a good employee. Um, and around 1238, the last people to see her alive was a couple from Georgia that was passing through on their way to Palatka, I believe. And they had stopped there to pick up some coffee and a couple of things to eat. And they say that around 1238 is when they were in the store. They were there at 1238 was the last ring up for them where they bought coffee and some snacks. So they were, they said they got their coffee and then they went outside and sat there for about 10 or 15 minutes before they left. They said they hung out on the tailgate of their truck for a little bit before they went to leave. Now, this Georgia couple says that when they went to leave, they vividly remember nearly striking another car that was pulling in at the time. It, it came in and when they are backing up to leave, they almost hit it. And they described it as a Pontiac Grand Prix in their words, a Heinz 57 color vehicle at that time. And it was around that time after they left, they nearly struck this vehicle, that within minutes, the silent alarm goes off in the store. There was a no sale at 12.54 a.m., meaning the cash register was popped open without a sale being registered. Then the store's silent alarm was triggered at 12.55 sending local authorities out to the store. It did take authorities some time to be able to get to the store. And when they got there, they found it in disarray. There was all the things that on the counter had been knocked over. There was cash kind of scattered on the ground. Um, there definitely looked like there had been a pretty significant struggle. Food was off the, the shelves. Uh, her purse was there. Um, there was money strewn about everywhere. There was a, a men's, man's, excuse me, man's belt about a uh, 30-inch size waist that was found there. And it was, uh, you take your belt off and loop it. Mm -hmm. Like it was looped through as if it was to tie or hold somebody down. But like they tried to use that belt to do that. And that was left there also. And very ominously, they find a belt that's looped through at the end as if it had been used to try to restrain somebody laying there on the ground. And Darlene is gone. As they began searching for Darlene, Investigators were also trying to figure out what exactly happened inside the convenience store. How an apparent small-time robbery could have turned into an abduction. Well, I asked the detective, did he think this was something that was personal and they were specifically there for, for Darlene? Because it's, I mean, it's unusual that you would abduct somebody if you're in a robbery um, or if they think this was just a robbery gone bad. 
And Lieutenant Lucier says that he believes this was a robbery that went bad, that maybe in the struggle, she recognized the people, um, but that this looks like it was probably by someone who was pretty inexperienced because there was so much money scattered on the ground and so much money left. There was not a lot of money missing, no. This was a robbery gone bad. Do you think it was a robbery or do you think they were after her? I, I think it... I think it was a robbery. I really do. Um, it, it, it's either one or two things, at least in my mind. Like, like I said, you know, uh, she fought back and they didn't know what to do. Or it was some individuals who just were very inexperienced in what they were doing. He said it, it looks like, I mean, whoever took her, if, if robbery, you know, was the motive, they really didn't get that much money. And again, why would you take essentially, you know, a hostage? Or why would you abduct somebody? Because that just makes things more difficult. So he believes this may have been a robbery gone bad. He doesn't think maybe this was personal, but maybe she recognized her attackers, small town. And then at that point, they have to take her. Darlene did carry a gun. Um, Her daughter said that she always kept one in her purse. And in the crime scene photos, you can see her purse still sitting on top of one of the crates. So whatever happened, it happened very quickly because she was never able to get to the gun in her purse, or it looks like even close to it since that area wasn't disturbed. Two days later, police would get a call about a body that had been spotted under a bridge in a shallow creek, and they would soon be able to confirm it was the body of Darlene Messer. So her body was found underneath the Swift Creek Bridge along State Road 100. It's a very isolated area. I mean, even today, I went out there um, to, to shoot some video for the story, and you only get a car that goes by maybe every few minutes. And they said back then, I mean, it could be a half hour, an hour. Nobody was really traveling that road because it's pretty isolated. A man working on the train tracks that run parallel um, to the Swift Creek Bridge is who initially spotted the body underneath the bridge. And so when they found her, they discovered she had really severe injuries. From the way it's described by Lieutenant Lucier, he says it looks like she was killed with a hammer. Probably some type of hammer or claw instrument. Uh, She had like a ball-peen hammer kind of look to her skull that was kind of crushed. And she had some claw marks that were indicative of of a hammer. So this was very brutal. It, It was. It was very violent, yes. It was a very violent attack. An attack that investigators say happened right there at the bridge. They believe she was murdered at the bridge just because at the convenience store, they didn't find a large amount of blood there, which of course, you know, if you're murdered with a hammer, there's going to be a large amount of blood and blood spatter. Um, and of course, they the silent alarm was tripped. Authorities were able to get there and they didn't find her. Um, so they believe she was murdered at the bridge at that point because um, they found blood there at the bridge and on the spot on the concrete, and then it looks like maybe on the railing where she would have been thrown over the side. But it's their their belief that she was murdered at the bridge. When Katie Jeffries spoke to Darlene Messer's daughter, Angela Tini, Angela told her she's visited the bridge. When I asked her if she had had visited that spot, um, it definitely, you could see it in her face that it took her a second to kind of gather her thoughts. And yes, she had. She said it was really hard because, of course, you're standing there. It's it's a quiet, isolated spot. Um, and as she told me, you know, you, you think to yourself, what happened here? Did she try to run? Did she try to escape? Which way did she try to escape? You know, and then you, you look at the water 
and you, you realize that's, that's where they found her. She was found face down in the water. It was just below the bridge on the south side of the bridge. According to Lieutenant Lucier, the bridge also gave investigators a potentially crucial piece of forensic evidence. There were some blood droplets on the ground and there were some blood droplets like on the concrete as she fell over. So those blood droplets, the, the, the detectives in hindsight did a very good job collecting blood for 30 years ago. And about six years ago, we were able to, what they call mini profiler DNA, basically get a, um, a sample that was able to be put in CODIS. So she was the minor contributor of that blood and our unknown suspect was a major contributor of that blood. With the blood found on the bridge, investigators had evidence and DNA from two different crime scenes. So they found DNA off of the belt that was left at the scene and DNA from the blood that was on the bridge from where Darlene was murdered. They say she, the blood they found on the bridge, she was a minor contributor. And then there, the majority of it was from an unknown suspect. Um, so it does look like, of course, Darlene put up quite a fight. But they haven't been able to say if the DNA on the belt is the same person as the DNA on the bridge. Um, and I even asked him, you know, how confident he was in in the DNA. Was the person who collected it, because obviously 1989, you didn't know about DNA. Was he concerned that maybe the, the samples themselves had been tainted? And he said that... Um, he felt he asked FDLE that exact same question, and they felt confident in the samples that the samples had not been tainted. Although there still have not been any arrests in the decades since Darlene Messer was killed, investigators do say they've zeroed in on a handful of unnamed suspects or groups of suspects. Around that time, there had been some other convenience store robberies. Um, so they started looking at a possible uh, suspect from other other convenience store robberies. Um, they had gotten a tip that someone had heard a woman screaming coming from a blue car. And one of their suspects at the time that had committed other convenience store robberies had a blue car. There was a report of a blue passenger car in that area that they heard was very loud. Someone did where her body was dumped. So, and they did see a blue passenger car somewhere in the area, but it wasn't right at the bridge. Well, when they got information about him, he had a blue passenger car. So they, they started following him, detectives, and they recovered a ski mask, a gun, and ultimately ended up arresting him for that and multiple other robberies that his, you can say, his crew was doing. But they weren't able to arrest this suspect for Darlene's killing. And there were still a few details that didn't seem to add up. For example, the description of this individual's blue car didn't match the description of a Heinz 57 colored Pontiac Grand Prix. And the blue car driving suspect has since given DNA samples to investigators to run against the samples recovered from the belt and from the blood found on the bridge. They took um, DNA, I believe, from, from that suspect who we're not naming, obviously, because he's never been charged in this crime, as well as, um, I believe, two other kind of known associates. And need, none of them came back with any DNA that matched. Um, so unfortunately, that was kind of a dead end. Perhaps a dead end, but not the only avenue investigators were headed down. In search of whoever was driving that Heinz-colored Pontiac, investigators had discovered two other possible suspects, a 17-year-old and a 23-year-old, whose names aren't public, but Lieutenant Lucier refers to as Roger and Robert. They, I'm, I'm just calling them Roger and Robert. There are two individuals who drove the Pontiac 
um, they were arrested 10 days prior at the Swanee Swifty in that vehicle in, in a Heinz Color 1977 Pontiac Grand Prix. They were arrested by a sergeant at that time. And in his report, he even put in there, they located a weapon and they were um, intoxicated. And he even put in the report that he suspected they were going to rob the store that night. Not only that, but it turns out Roger and Robert knew Darlene. Through some investigating, we learned that they actually knew each other. They worked together in Clay County, where Darlene was from before she moved to Columbia, mm -hmm. and at a, at a restaurant called the Oyster Shack. So the three, they all knew each other. Um, and so the investigator, Lieutenant Lucier, he wanted to talk to people who maybe knew them from that time to see if there was another person that Roger and Robert hung out with or um, anyone else, you know, that might be significant to, to this crime or to this group of people, since it does appear that, that they knew each other prior to all of this. So um, I, I think it's important that if anybody who knows those individuals and if they worked with Darlene and Roger and Robert in 1988 at the Oyster Shack, if, if they could tell us something about, you know, uh, their history, were, were they together? We even heard at one point that Roger and Darlene maybe even dated for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be great if the public could help us with that because it would be very hard to get that information for me for some 32 years ago. Back in 1989, when one of the detectives working the case went out to talk to Roger and Robert, there was one other detail about the car, again, a Heinz Color Pontiac Grand Prix, that caught his attention. So he went out to talk to them, and while he is there, he sees that they have a Pontiac Grand Prix that's a Heinz 57 color, and that he, one of the suspects was in the process of working on the car underneath the car. When the deputy pulled up, he was under the hood and he had a, uh, I'm not going to say an oil leak, but he had some type of leak going on and was trying to fix it. So if, if you read our crime scene reports, the vehicle that, uh, this was 10 days prior now, the vehicle that came and abducted her and took off had some type of major oil leak. There was also a major oil leak on the bridge where right where she was dumped too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it throws up a lot of red flags. Of course, that raises a lot of red flags in investigators' minds. It still raises red flags for investigators um, because I mean, how many coincidences can there be in a case? So that is why they've kind of looked at these suspects but then they have taken DNA from both, and that DNA, same thing, doesn't match. They were both ruled out as the contributor to the belt and to the blood scrapings on the concrete. If Roger and Robert were involved, someone else had to have left that DNA at both crime scenes, a third suspect. It's a theory investigators have considered. So investigators, why they really wanted to spotlight this case was because... They want to know if maybe there was a, a third person with Roger and Robert. Because they feel, you know, of course, there's a lot of red flags between the Grand Prix, the oil leak, um, the fact that they say these suspects had looked at, were arrested for wanting to rob the store prior to Darlene being murdered, and the fact that they knew each other. So there's just so many red flags. 
but the DNA doesn't match. So they want to know if there was maybe a third person that, that hung out with Roger and Robert who could have been there that night that they don't know about, and that might be the DNA connection. But aside from Roger and Robert and the driver of that blue car, there are still other suspects. A list of people who could still be a match for the DNA samples from the crime scenes. We've compiled a list of suspects over the years, and we are trying to, now that we have you know, DNA, at least see if those subjects are in CODIS, and if not, if we can get their DNA. So we, we, we have that list, and we're trying to knock people off as time permits. Beyond the DNA, investigators believe there's one other key to solving this case. The community. That somebody out there knows more than what they're saying. Because obviously, Lake City is still a pretty small community, but especially back in 1989, very small community. So they believe there are people out there who know more than probably what they told investigators or have heard things over the years. They want to talk to people who've heard those rumors or maybe know an associate of Roger and Roberts um, that they have never told investigators about before. After more than 30 years of waiting, Darlene's daughter, Angela Tini, is hopeful that investigators might finally be nearing an arrest. She definitely appreciates that Lieutenant Lucier is really invested in this case, that he has traveled to go see um, the suspects, Roger and Robert, neither of which live in the area anymore, but he has traveled out there to personally get the DNA samples from both that, you know, that the Columbia County Sheriff's Office out of the cases they had, they wanted to spotlight Darlene's case. Um, So she is grateful that they're really trying to pursue all the avenues they can in this. Um, and, And she's just hopeful that maybe somewhere, whether it be genetic genealogy or something, that there's gonna be a crack in this case where her mom will finally get some justice. Do you think this case is solvable? Yes. Yeah. What would it mean to you? Because you've talked to Angela. Um, what would it mean to you to be able to call her and tell her that you have either an arrest or you have an mm-hmm. answer? Uh, it, would be, it, would be, it would be awesome for her and for her family. It'd be great for the community, too, for us to, to wrap this case up. Um, because this was, like, like we just said, said, it's a very violent, brutal attack, you know? Um, and I, I know Angela would be really happy to, to get that phone call one day. The big thing I think for Angela is A, she wants closure, and B, she wants people to remember her mom is not just a murder victim, not just someone who was brutally killed because, you know, she says her mom had so much, had so much life before that and, you know, loved animals, was a good person, was a fighter. And she says she's trying to be a fighter too to keep her mom's case out there in the spotlight and hopefully get some justice for her. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, here along with Reed Redman. Reed, thanks for bringing us the story this week. Uh, a few questions wanted to run by you. First of all, two different groups of suspects, and neither has turned up a DNA match. We heard that investigators are considering the possibility of an unknown accomplice being involved along with Roger and Robert. So let me ask you, is it also possible that the suspect with the blue car could have had an accomplice that left the DNA? Yeah, it sounds like that is something that investigators have considered, likely are still considering. You know, this this is an unsolved case. Nothing is really certain about it. Uh, but Lieutenant Lucier told Katie Jeffries that uh, they were able to get DNA from one guy who was known to commit robberies with that that suspect who drove the blue car. 
But he said that there was another individual who was known to be involved with these guys that is deceased and that they were never able to get a DNA sample from. So it does sound like, you know, the same way investigators haven't ruled out Roger and Robert as suspects based on them not having a DNA match, they haven't ruled out the blue car suspect entirely either. And Reed, do we know that the DNA samples from the crime scenes are from one suspect or could they be from more than one person? Yeah, that's that's another piece of this that makes things a little bit more confusing. I think it was briefly mentioned earlier in the episode, but uh, investigators don't actually know if the DNA from the belt is a match for the DNA sample from the bridge. What the lieutenant told Katie Jeffries is that that was actually one of his biggest questions and that they don't have a way to answer that at this point. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly why, but yeah, what that means is that there could be two completely different unknown suspects or the samples could be from the same person. And Reed, what about genetic genealogy? Is there a possibility that that could be used to track down relatives of whomever left these DNA samples? This was something else that was super interesting to hear about because that was one of the things I was thinking as I was learning more about this case is, is maybe that could be something that would be helpful. But what we heard from Lieutenant Lucier is, is that they don't actually have enough DNA for genetic genealogy to be useful, at least as it exists right now. Uh, the sample from the belt is apparently according to the lieutenant, only enough to test for an exact match. They have to actually swab somebody and then compare it directly to that sample. And he actually said that it's such a small amount of DNA that they aren't even able to put that sample in CODIS, which is the FBI's DNA database. And then the other sample that they have, the one from the bridge, they were able to put it into CODIS. But to do that, Lieutenant Lucier said that they had to actually use the entire sample. So he had to actually decide... Do we send this off to CODIS to get it in that database and hope it, it turns up something? Or do we hold on to it so that we can test it locally? And because they did make that decision to enter that sample into CODIS, they don't have it anymore. So they can't really do anything along the lines of familial DNA or genetic genealogy or, or anything like that, at least according to Lieutenant Lucier. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And thanks to Katie Jeffries at First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. 